hello and welcome to episode 96 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast that tests the limits of the friendship between two people who mistake movie taste for personal morality. I'm Nate Goss, here with Ryan Ebling. Today, we are excited to welcome a very special guest, Pastor Watson Jones, professor and senior pastor at Compassion Baptist Church on Chicago's South Side and a former classmate of ours from college. Watson wanted to discuss The King's Speech, directed by Tom Hooper and starring Colin Firth, Jeffrey Rush, and Helena Bonham Carter. Though it's been some time since Ryan and I have seen The King's Speech, we're looking forward to hearing what the movie means to Watson and how the intimate story of a very public figure's private struggles can speak to us commoners. The King's Speech was pretty roundly praised by critics and audiences alike. With a worldwide gross of nearly $430 million, it entered award season as an unlikely frontrunner in an unusually strong year for movies with 12 nominations. It ended up winning not only Best Picture, but Best Actor for Colin Firth, Best Director for Tom Hooper, and Best Original Screenplay. As far as Best Picture winners go, it hasn't necessarily stayed in the public consciousness, but is very much a predecessor to shows like The Crown and the upcoming movie Spencer about Princess Diana demonstrating that there is a deep well of interest for the behind-closed-doors lives of England's royal family. But does the King's Speech go further than airing the unknown dirty laundry of our betters? Yeah, what do we have to learn from the struggles of elites? Keep listening. You were sublime. Would I lie to a prince of the realm to win 12 pennies? I've no idea what an Australian might do for that sort of money. Let me fly it back to you. No. All right, then. I'll get to ask you the questions. Thank you, Doctor. I don't feel this is for me. Thank you for your time. Bye. All right. So that's uh, Academy Award winner Colin Firth uh, giving his Academy Award winning performance as King George VI there in that uh, in that clip. And uh, that, that in that section, he's a, a bit frustrated. Oh, a low point yeah. for him. Yeah. 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 And that's his performance in the movie we are discussing t- in today's episode, The King's Speech, a movie that was uh, suggested we discuss with our guest, Watson Jones, uh, who is here. Welcome, Watson. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited to have you. We had no idea what you would pick. And um, the King's Speech kind of surprised me, but then I was like, oh, I, I can actually see how this might be something that like mm-hmm. a pastor and that you specifically would be interested in talking about. But I'm really mm-hmm. excited to hear what you have to say about it. And before we dive right into it, let's just back up a little bit and and maybe just talk about you know um, what you do, who you are. Now we mm-hmm. know we knew we went to college with you uh, mm-hmm. at That's Trinity, right. That's um, right. and you guys I, look the same. We, <laughs> you do too. You do too. Actually, Thank not you. not much changes over what we were talking about. This what close to fifteen years or so. Yes, fifteen yeah. years. My lord, uh, which, I feel like I've is, got a lot more forehead than I did back then. <laughs> I have a lot more, way more forehead. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, so we, we met in college, um, but That's we right. actually haven't really seen each other since college. That's right. Although I feel like for me, um, what's been really great is kind of following you on mm-hmm. Facebook, on Instagram, and just, I, I love following you on social media. I think you always have such, you know, wise words to say about what we're going through or just, you're just Thank a... You. 
I, I just enjoy yeah. reading what you read. And then on Instagram, I felt like we, me and you kind of had this connection over things like Fleetwood Mac and Genesis. <laughs> I would put those <laughs> records up and That's I'd be like, right. yeah, I know if I put this up, Watson's going to get it. That's He's right. Gonna- <laughs> I'm going to be the first one to like. <laughs> You're going to be the first one to like. And my know, daughter will no, too. She, no loves, jacket required. she loves it. That's right. That's awesome. <laughs> now, what does she? She loves the Phil Collins, the Genesis, he, the Fleetwood Mac, all of it. She plays every day. I want to say during the pandemic, she played two albums, like records, on my record player. Mm-hmm. She played No Jackets Required to the point where certain songs skip, like Susu Studio skips now. <laughs> I gotta get a new copy. <laughs> I gotta get a new copy, but they're like a lot of money. Yeah. You know? And then she plays. She to this day plays. Uh, not Fleetwood Mac, uh, Chicago, one of Chicago's albums. And she's figured out the little speed button. And so she likes to speed it up and listen to the chipmunks sing it. And then I come and turn it down and then she speeds it back up. That's like her thing. That's That's great. For whatever reason, my, my kids, my boys, they, they just, they don't even think to touch the records. It's almost like it's an unspoken sacred thing. Like you don't touch dad's records. Uh (laughs) I've tried to even get them into it, but I feel like it must be the way I handle them where I brush them and, you know, I, I kind of easily take them out and I think they see that and they're kind of like, I'm not touching that stuff. You know, know, it started with her, you know, well, my daughter's autistic. So things repetition for her is big, but Mm -hmm. for her, it started when she was a baby. I used to play like the Beatles and I would, I would have her in my arms and I would dance around the room singing these songs. And I've maintained a record player our whole, at least her whole life. And I would throughout periods of my life, just play different records. And for whatever reason, she fell in love with that No Jackets Required. And mm-hmm. then that Chicago, I don't even remember which Chicago album it is because they got like 900. Uh-huh. But she fell in love with those and she plays them every day. Wow. <laughs> That's great. It's good that it's stuff that you like. You oh, know? Yeah. Oh, that's true. That's my baby girl. She loves my music. Her mama music, she don't care nothing about her mama's music, but she loves my music. It's Phil Collins. What's not to like? You know? Amen. <laughs> well, okay, so King's Speech. Yeah, what we tend to do is we talk about like first viewings. Like, What do you remember about the first time you watched it? So when, when did you first watch this movie? I went to the movies to see it when it first came out. I think it came out in like 2010, 2011, mm-hmm. maybe even before then. No, 2010, I, yeah. 2010. I think I was still in seminary, actually. In fact, I was. And, you know, I, I go to the movies a lot by myself, pre-pandemic at least. Mm-hmm. And I went to go see it because I like Colin Firth, number one. Number two, I'm a real big fan of like of British cinema, British TV. Mm-hmm. And so I went to go see it. And I just remember, you know, and I'm not the most emotional guy, mm-hmm. but I remember watching that movie and several times, like feeling like I was going to break out in tears. Mm. And and then at the end of it, like just just feeling like I was going to cry. And I was like, mm. what is this? And so it was the very first time I saw it in the theater. I fell in love with that movie. And I, I have a slew of favorites and I'm not a slew, but at least a handful. But I mean, consistently, man, that's 11 years later. And it's a movie that I still can go to and just like be amazed by new things I didn't notice before Mm -hmm. and even deeper, deeper developments of thought, like as an adult who's 37 now and thinking about life and, and like, I'm able to watch that movie and certain things make a little more sense to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And so ever since then, and I bought it back when DVDs were for sale uh-huh. and my wife can tell you, man, there was a period where I watched that movie at least twice a week. Really? And 
Yes. And then like, cause I knew it so well, it would play almost in the background while I was sitting at the table doing work. And it was just, it was just an enjoy. I mean, I own the soundtrack and everything. It was just a moving film and it, it just touched me deeply. So it's been a part of your life ever since then. It has. And if it's something that, yeah, I can imagine if it's something that you, you know, like I'm sure the things you were working on, your studies, those sorts of things are part of who have formed you. Yes. That movie was part of that whole process too. Yes. That's yes. really fascinating. My wife thinks it's so strange that I watched it because I tease her like, you know, she watches The Office a lot or like Parks and Recs. Yeah. And she knows these episodes by heart. She'll watch some of them. Yeah. And I, and she, and I was like, why are you doing this? She says, we're not going to start on your King of Speech kick. <laughs> She's always got that in her back pocket. Always in her back pocket. I'm like, man, that was a great film. It was a great film. Yeah. I feel like we all kind of have those I mean, it's like comfort food, but it's like the comfort movies, the ones that mm-hmm. you, you you probably couldn't even give us a number of how many times you've seen it. And even even if you could, you know, sometimes maybe you're just having it on the background, like you said, like it's just oh, yeah. sort of, it becomes sort of part of who you are, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I am curious, you know, I know you said that you're a fan of Colin Firth and of, mm-hmm. you know, British, uh, you know, television movies, but was it just one that you were always going to see in the theater or was there something about it that you were like, I think this one's going to be great, you know? Because I, I think for me, and you know, me and Ryan should probably get into our first viewings as well. But mm-hmm. my first viewing isn't all that memorable because for me, it was really just about catching up for the Oscars. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> Ryan, we, we were just talking about the other movies that came out that year. It was like Social Network. Um, mm-hmm. Black Swan. Black Swan. Toy Story uh, 3. Toy, yeah, it was, mm-hmm. there was a, so many good movies that came out. That's that right. Year. And there were so many good movies that were kind of more probably targeted towards my tastes, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, it's a Darren Aronofsky film, a David Fincher film. I'm going to go see mm-hmm. those. And Tom Hooper, well, I didn't yeah. have any familiarity really with, with Tom Hooper. No. I, I knew who Colin Firth was, but right. he, I only knew him as, you know, Mr. Darcy. Uh, that's, that's the only way I knew him too. Mr. Darcy. Cause my wife made me watch that with the pride, pride and prejudice, prejudice series. That's yeah. right. Um, and, and so for me, it was kind of like, okay, this is getting a lot of, big buzz it's mm-hmm. going to be an oscar contender and then it was nominated for best picture and i was like i for me it was kind of like i guess i have to see this and i did like it um but ryan did, was it kind of similar for you was mm-hmm. that kind of your story as yeah, well? yeah it's tough when it's that like end of the year and i'm just watching a ton of stuff and it can get lost kind of in that shuffle mm-hmm. um and so it's I, honestly it's not one that i've seen again since i don't think <laughs> Um, until we rewatched it here, um, mm-hmm. which was part of why I was so interested that you picked it. I was like, because for me, it's not one that has, uh, not certainly not to the extent that it has <laughs> been for you, but it hasn't been one that I've revisited. And so um, I remember liking it and I remember understanding why everybody was buzzing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't, yeah, I guess it didn't stand out to me uh, so much, yeah, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and to be honest, Watson, I think, you know, and especially at that time, I was probably at my film snobbiest <laughs> ever, ever. So if anything you know, was too popular, it was going to be. It was like, forget this. Turn well, it off. And, and I, you know, I followed the Oscar races and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it. And then, like I said, all these other movies came out that I really loved. And then there, I, I have to be honest, I think there was just a bit of backlash for me because it, it was all about the comparison. I was not able to really take it on its own merits because I could mm-hmm. only see it as a comparison yeah. to these other movies. Mm-hmm. And then when it won... Then it, then that became its reputation to me. And there's almost always backlash against the best picture winner. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. You almost you any movie that wins best picture, it's almost like you should be required to revisit it like ten years later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. To actually look at it for what it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Know? But I guess going back to my original question is, I guess I'm just wondering, like, was there something specifically about this story or 
um, the, the movie itself or just the buzz around it that you were like, yes, I'm going to go to the theater by myself to go watch this. Movie. Yeah. Did you see yeah. yourself connecting with it or did it surprise you too? Like so, your reaction? You know what it was, but it, bizarrely enough, this is just so weird. So I, I'm, cause I had to think about that. Like what made me so interested in this movie? The year prior, I had gone to England in 2009. Mm-hmm. I led the gospel choir there. And so I, the Trinity Gospel Choir. So sure. we were in England. And of course, I saw like Buckingham Palace, you know, mm-hmm. I saw Windsor. And, you know, I had to read a book called Know Your English for a whole different anthropology course I took. But reading that book, Know Your English, and going to England kind of got me interested in the nuances of English culture. Mm. Sort of like, you know, in terms of how they view the weather and how weather it paints their reality almost, you know, their hello is they just start talking about the weather and how in talking about the weather, you can understand how someone feels Mm. Uh, or even the distance that and Americans have an element of this, too. But the distance that uh, people would have with one another in terms of uh, spatial like or or privacy, the notion of this is my castle. There's a part where he says this, my castle, my rules, Mm. this notion of my own private castle. And you don't ask me my name, you know, so the personal nature that these two characters had, you know, people in England are friends, of course, but there is a sense where, you know, people are a little slower to become personable and friends with someone in English culture. Now, again, this is generally speaking, I'm not a cultural anthropologist. So with all of that in my mind, and then I saw sites, you know, I went to St. George's Cathedral, where I believe uh, George VI is buried, you know, so there was always this sort of interest in my head. And I don't know all those kings and queens, but <laughs> there was an interest. So when I see this advertisement for the King of England, you know, the King's speech, and there's some kind of way in the trailer letting me know this is about King Henry VI. Oh, wow. That's Elizabeth's father. Hmm. I don't yeah. know much about him other than I saw where he was buried. And so it was like, I want to I want to see what this is. And I am someone who's deeply interested in history. Like I'll mention some of that later on. But in terms of like the role that he played in the time period that he was playing. Mm-hmm. And then I get there and I'm I'm taken aback by the story. Uh, because I didn't think that's what the story was about. And I remember thinking like the King's speech. So, okay, well, maybe this is like, I have a dream, Dr. King, you know, it's like him building up to how he wrote that speech or something. I had no idea that it would take the story it took. So you didn't even know it was about like uh, overcoming a stuttering problem or, Mm -hmm. you know, or or even like what Jeffrey Rush's character was or anything like that, which was how, I mean, I didn't know anything about it either, really. I didn't. uh, Nobody really did. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I feel like I had heard that he might've been referred to as, uh, King George the Stammerer. I think I'd heard that before. And there might have been even someone even further back in history that also may have had a stammer. But, you know, people stutter. Uh, people stutter. There are people who stutter worse than others. But, you know, I never thought that it was like something that almost handicapped him. Right. Mm-hmm. Their current president uh, has Precisely. a stuttering. Oh, man, he stutters all the time. <laughs> right. He, he misfit, misses. I mean, you know, he right. misfires on words. He'll say something. Go, oh, wait, wait. I don't mean that. it's like it's like mm-hmm. a brain freeze. Mm-hmm. But I think, too, um, they you know, it, it to me and I'm, I, I think I saw all of those movies, by the way, that some of the ones that were major ones in 2010. Mm-hmm. But I'm also one who really likes. I mean, all those movies have stories and storylines and because it's not a movie without it. But I really like drama like that, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of takes you personal 
kind of like character driven character driven kind of stuff that, yeah yeah I'm really yeah. into that kind of stuff, but I watch anything, but mm-hmm. nuanced people, like people who you might yeah. see a picture of, because clearly there are coins with his face on it. I mean, no one, they're not in circulation anymore, but yeah. you've seen them if you look in the book, uh, but to see they were also nuanced in some way. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's kind of interesting to me. Well, then maybe we should, you know, let, maybe we should dig in a little bit deeper and start getting into our rewatch a little bit and actually start mm-hmm. looking at some pieces of this movie. Um, can I ask you, though, you know, so you rewatched this for the the podcast. Um, yes. How long had it been before that since you had seen it? Are we talking like a couple days? Like a year or so or yeah. I think it might have been about four years so you were still, you know, there was a little bit of a gap there. Like, did mm-hmm. it, I mean, I guess, you know, what did it feel like this time around returning to it after that little bit of space? You know, was it kind of like going back to something like a cozy blanket or was it, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> a little different or? No, it, it, it was like going back to a cozy blanket. Um, interestingly enough, I felt the same emotions uh, that I felt the first time I saw it you know, the same, mm-hmm. like I, I was sitting there and like, I could feel tears welling up my eyes almost. Mm-hmm. And so I felt those same emotions. Even when I listened to the soundtrack, mm-hmm. I can feel those same emotions. I think the good thing about it with there being a gap, I right. think that because it wasn't so fresh, it felt like I was watching it over again, even though I knew, oh yeah, this next scene, you know, he's about to, you know, he's about to talk to his brother who's going to run up the stairs, you know, because he's crying about the fact he's about to be king. You know, mm-hmm. like I knew it, but it still was like, oh yeah, it's interesting. I never paid attention to that. So you you were seeing new things. Oh even, yeah. Even this Tons time. Tons of new things. Oh yeah. It's almost like, um, so like in my field of study for my school, I, will, I promise I won't go nerd on this. It, <laughs> it is. Go nerd, do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as a, as a person who studies homiletics and a little bit of rhetoric, you know, we look at texts, in my case, sermon texts, but I've also read texts of speeches from like, you know, um, Abraham Lincoln and things like that. But you look at texts and you see what those texts meant then, but then you come back to them Mm -hmm. and you read them years later. And, you know, you as the reader, the critic, you have a different, you have different life experiences. You think differently about different things. You've read different books. Uh, you've been exposed to newer fields of knowledge. And so now when you come to another film, it, the story doesn't change, but it's almost as if its meaning takes a different form mm-hmm. yeah. because life, you, you're now interpreting it through a different lens. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, if I can talk about my rewatch a little bit, it, I, I had forgotten how big a role the leadership during wartime was taking for him like how how it it wasn't just that first speech where it was a ceremonial speech that was that he was nervous about giving it was like no 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 this one needs to put the nation at ease like mm-hmm. this needs to prepare the the country for another war that they are still healing from that's right you know and how big uh a job that was for mm-hmm. him right and he had mm-hmm. seen his brother who was prepped that whole time not be able to live up to it and he himself was feeling like, you know, basically like dodging a bullet, mm-hmm. having been the second born son, that he would not have to do that. And now he does have to. And sort of like, what does it mean for a leader to lead in a crisis 
obviously is something we were th- we've, we've been thinking about the last yes. couple of years. Yes. And as the crises compound, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You know, yeah. like as COVID yeah. gets worse, as Afghanistan gets worse, as like things are happening, it it was it was at, like you're absolutely like you're saying the the context and the response is different from 2010 when yes. I think we all felt pretty secure you know kind of yeah generally it was, speaking it was almost like you'd watch it as like wow what you know that would have been hard to live at that time and yeah. and and now we are yeah, yeah we are kind of living in a time that i think we're going to look back at and be like man that was a hard time to live through oh yeah a movie that was a window is now a mirror yeah exactly i had, I had the very same thought there was a scene in the movie where he's riding to buckingham palace and he's in the car, you know, and this is this is right before the speech. And, you know, and he, you can kind of see the, ca- the camera, mm-hmm. you know, panning along and you can see how, you know, certain the entryways to the underground were padded with sandbags and people were running there as the siren was going off. And then he looks up when he gets out the car, he says, oh, the balloons are up. They got those up fast. I, when the first time I saw that, didn't know what those balloons were about until I read The Splendid and the Vile. Mm. didn't finish it yet but i started it last summer and then started class again but <laughs> uh which was about churchill and they talked about how they raised these balloons these these balloons all over populated areas as a way to really try to bring you know because the planes had to fly low enough to see who they were going to bomb they they had these balloons that were raised almost to act as a as a dragnet so to speak to the planes that the mm. planes would run into them and bring them down um and I'm like, oh, wow. And and it's only when you kind of consider the history of the period and you realize, oh, man, you know, they didn't know this yet, but they were about to get really bombed, you know, and the threat of of a despot, you know, who had taken over all of Western Europe mm-hmm. and was on his way to England. And then you also consider like all of this is in my mind, knowing that in a few years there's Churchill who would be literally begging roosevelt to send money to send ships because their navy wasn't strong enough to fight hitler like knowing just how they were literally standing at the brink of an existential threat Mm -hmm. and then i look at now you know through all that we've seen from january 6th to the pandemic to the six thousand waves of the pandemic and the hundreds of thousands of deaths no one could have imagined at the beginning of February 2020, when coronavirus was kind of just being uttered about in the news Mm -hmm. and, you know, just how the world changes. And, you know, we all were on lockdown. Mm -hmm. Grocery stores were almost empty. Mm -hmm. That felt apocalyptic to them, but it also felt apocalyptic to us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that's something that the movie does really well without having to be, without hammering it. You very much feel the dread in the movie, I think. And I also think it puts you in this place of, oh, that would be hard to come out of the great war and come out of that thinking boy that was terrible we're never doing that again and then to see this and be like what is going on we're gonna go we're honestly gonna do this we're gonna go through this all over again are you kidding me and then Mm -hmm. to have to be a leader during that yes and then to have this personal issue of like you know obviously there's this the speech impediment but there's also just the self-confidence that comes with that and feeling like you're not worthy yeah, I do feel like this was for me on the rewatch a very fresh experience. I watched mm-hmm. it totally anew and had uh, a very new appreciation for it. And even in the filmmaking, because one thing I really noticed about it's a dark movie visually. It is, yeah. It never really brightens up. And I think that goes back to what you were mm-hmm. saying about the weather. 
it's British in that way, even in moments that even in the interiors, yeah, yeah, in the interiors, mm-hmm. and even in these sort of like optimistic moments, it never really gets bright ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't remember it, a sunny day in the movie. <laughs> no, no, no really. it wasn't. No. If you think about it, like that, there's a scene where where Logue and Birdie are walking down through this parkway, right, and oh, it's right. foggy as all get out. Now I've been to England. I was only there for two weeks. I don't remember it ever looking like that. But, right. you know, we know <laughs> London fog. That's a thing. <laughs> yeah. But it's foggy. It's gloomy. And Birdie is sort of symbolically walking off into this fog. But his life is that. His life is that fog. It's that dark, scary place where you cannot see the surroundings at all. Like if, if you watch the film and you're aware of places you don't know where that is right it's not one of those like oh there's that building and oh there's you know there's there's very little to mm-hmm. orient you through those sorts of landmarks mm-hmm. and i also noticed how the interiors are so empty even mm-hmm. when it's a room of crowded people it's a huge room like when he walks into the the room to sort of become king yes there are a lot of people there but it is a empty room you know of just cavernous sort of empty room that theme of being on display and feeling so isolated and yeah is visually represented all over the movie Mm -hmm. and then it's also repeated in his life story you know Mm -hmm. talking about how he grew up with several brothers and sisters and family and people all around but it's very clear he felt alone that whole time Utterly alone. And the way people related to him was cruel, right? Mm-hmm. Like his his father tried to make him, he tried to make him afraid of him, like yes. a stated goal. And mm-hmm. um, I think it, it, it can be a hard thing to drum up sympathy for royalty, <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. But it, I think that was another thing that struck me this time is that they do it in a really natural way in a really organic mm-hmm. way in a way that i don't know and i think part of it is colin firth's attempts at acting like he's above that pain like well yes of course they talked to me that way of course they made fun of me like yeah people mm-hmm. did that to me and then that is where jeffrey rush i think was so vital to this movie because his right. performance is just very understated but the way he uh you know reacts to that it's just like that was wrong. Yeah, there's you know? a tenderness there that's very mm-hmm. touching, I think. When it comes to these pieces, you never know exactly how much is, you know, true, how much is dramatized. And you look and you read it and you're like, it wasn't that far off. Lionel right. Logue was someone who, you know, he went to for an hour each day for weeks and weeks, weeks. Uh, mm-hmm. before this. And Lionel Logue did stay <laughs> in his life throughout, mm-hmm. you know, the rest mm-hmm. of his life. Um, mm-hmm. We don't really know what happened in those speech therapy sessions because he didn't keep a journal or a log no, of he it. Did. And I, I thought I read he didn't. Well, maybe, they, well it, I watched one of the special features. Oh, okay. I don't know if you've watched those, Watson. If you, uh, but Years um, ago. <laughs> they said that just a few weeks before they started filming, Lionel Logue's grandson found his diary in the attic okay and it was the only record anywhere like there aren't pictures of lionel logue really he Mm -hmm. was a really like kind of hidden forgotten figure in in the 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 story of george the sixth but they actually ended up adding lines of dialogue that came from his diary and like you know right after he finished his speech his speech and he said uh you still stuttered on the w or something Mm -hmm. and um George said, well, I had to throw some in there so they'd know it was me. Yeah. That was 
taken from his diary. Yeah. Like that was something they actually said to each other. Wow. Um, That's interesting because that to me felt like a screenplay. Yeah. <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't feel real. But yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. So, Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've ever actually listened to the real King's speech that's recorded. I feel um, like I heard snippets of it before. I, I listened to it right before we started recording, and I was like, man, he nailed it. Spoken with the same depth of feeling for each one of you, as if I were able to cross your threshold your and threshold. speak to you. And speak to you. Myself. myself. For the second time in the lives of For the second time in the lives of most of us, we are at, at war. You know, he does kind of nail exactly the delivery of how, yep. like, you know, the, 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 how much pause there was. Um, mm-hmm. After you watch this movie and you listen to that speech, um, it's just like, Oh wow, that was that's a real person. That's right. This real issue, this that's real right. issue that he was overcoming. And how many people listening to it, you know, if you're just a person in England that at the time listening to it, just mm-hmm. have no idea. And it's just sort of a reminder of like, what about speeches I've listened to? And you just got no idea what's going on behind that's the right. scenes and no idea what's going on with that person that's causing that's right. them to do certain, you know, to act a certain way. And yep. it's interesting because I think if you listen to the speech, I think it's totally true what Lionel says in the movie, where he basically says, uh, silence adds solemnity. If you listen to that speech and you don't know the reason for a lot of those pauses, right? it has that effect. Mm-hmm. It does add this weight to what he's saying to just mm-hmm. pause and to just leave these silences in there. It made me know? think even now, because I think our, our, our you know, contemporaries, you know, politicians, speeches, people who give mm-hmm. sort of public addresses, it would be so foreign now for us to hear someone with that much pause. That many pauses, everything. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we don't know how to, you know, in public speaking now, we don't, no one knows how to do those kind of pauses until you speak to someone who, you know, no one is necessarily like up and thriving from that generation that's an adult, yeah. that was an adult then. But you speak to someone, maybe the generation under, who was a public speaker, you know, meaning that they're in their 80s now. And when they speak, they speak, in these metered tones and Mm -hmm. and they'll pause a lot and you'll think they're done (laughs) and they're not. And they'll, and they're just, you know, kind of pausing to catch their breath, their thoughts. Mm -hmm. It's real deliberate. But even if you think about silence, I I remember thinking about this, you know, especially as I noticed is this time, there's a lot of silence in the movie, especially Mm -hmm. in the earlier parts for example, the very first meeting, there is nothing. You don't hear anything. You barely hear a creak on the floor. There's pauses as he's he's clearly trying to get his words out of his mouth. There's silence in the room and and silence, you know, as, as he's trying to catch his voice throughout mm-hmm. the whole show, throughout the whole movie, really. You know, the music doesn't even pick up until mm-hmm. he starts to sort of develop his voice. Yeah. That's yeah, a, that's, that's a really interesting. interesting. Or locate yeah. his voice, rather. Right, yeah. right. And the way that silence transforms throughout the movie too. Yes. Where at the beginning, you know, that first speech, mm-hmm. that's a really jarring opening actually. Oh, and the, mm-hmm. the way, the way the, the stand, the stammering just reverberates. Through yes. yes. You know, yes. It, it hits you hard. Yeah. I have received. For Mrs. Majesty, the, 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 the
The king. And I think a lot of that is the the director, Tom Hooper, told because Colin Firth was sort of like as he was preparing, he's like, so tell me, you you know, which lines do you want me to stammer on? And he said, all of them mm. do it on every one at that beginning to really not not to like oversell it, but just to, I think, establish what silence meant to him, you know, that it was such a, a terrifying thing because what it meant to him was he's embarrassing himself. He's not, he's not being able to speak. Mm -hmm. But then later that silence takes on like, uh, he owns it. Like that silence is deliberate. Yeah. You're being deliberate. Like you're, you're, like you said, you're using your voice. You're you're like that, that silence is part of your voice right now. And the time to think and the time to be solemn. So is that something that you have intentionally thought about as you preach, as you teach preachers? Like, because I don't know, as a, as a teacher, I teach high school, right? I've learned how important just wait time for students to process things is mm-hmm. to the point that sometimes like students need to get used to how long I will wait after I ask a question so that I, you know, there's an intentionality to that. That's counterintuitive to the way a lot of people think. Is that something that you've thought of? You know, yes. Um, so, you know, they're different kind of speakers. Some, some rely heavily on teleprompters and scripts. Mm-hmm. Some have very good memory and they remember exactly every point of what they want to say. I'm probably somewhere in between, but I'm really, I'm really good at being extemporaneous and off my, off the cuff. Very mm-hmm. good at that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't do public speaking without being good at that, or, or at least in, in the way that you do it as a pastor, where you have to be a little flexible in some ways. I think it wasn't until maybe about two years ago where I started using silence a little more. Um, I think in the counseling moments, I'm I'm not afraid of silence because sure. uh, silence in counseling and silence in fundraising, you know, they're uncomfortable for people. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but but who break whoever breaks that silence first in fundraising generally is going to lose. But in, <laughs> especially when you've made the ask for money. But yeah. secondly, when you're counseling people, sometimes saying making a point or asking a question or letting them talk the therapist or the counselor has to take silence because silence it's uncomfortable for them. So they're going to feel like they have to say something, but it also, it it kind of says, Hey, look, if you're not ready to talk, we're just going to sit here in silence and be okay with that. Mm-hmm. I think as I speak publicly though, silence has made me slow down and pause more, not necessarily for deeper thought or reflection. I wish I could say that, but to not, trip over my words, to not use unnecessary fillers, mm-hmm. to communicate as clearly as possible, um, to express my thoughts in a clear and concise way. To make your um, words matter. Absolutely. You know, prime example, my, my pastor was at, we had a conference at the church this past weekend and we were honoring him. And I knew that I had to say something, but I didn't know what I was going to say. And, uh, and I, so I made it up in my head as I was sitting down, like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And it still wasn't fully there. I've probably stood up. I was about 60% of the way there in my head. And I just said, okay, I'm going to push my way through it. And I just, you know, I spoke in a slow tone, you know, slow pace. 
And it just came together. And it, and to people in the room, they thought I was being deep. I could tell because they because because they were like, mm. yeah, you hear that. You know, they were really feeling it. But little do they know, I was really fetching for what's next. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, and this is actually very timely because um, the the comedian Norm Macdonald passed away. That's right. Uh, yesterday. yesterday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But everybody's talking right now about how his moth joke is one of the greatest jokes ever told. And I'm not going to really get into it. I would butcher it if I tried it and it would take forever to do. So I'm not going to do that. Um, But I will say, just go to YouTube and watch it. It is brilliant. It is such a great joke. But then he had a video um, where someone asked him about, you know, the development of not just that joke, but a lot of his jokes. But then he used it as an example Mm -hmm. where he basically said that like what we now talk about is maybe one of the greatest jokes ever told was really just, uh, like a 20 second joke that Colin Quinn had told him like the, basically the setup and the punchline that's been around uh-huh. for ages. It's not even Colin Quinn's joke. It's just a joke that's been around for ages. Mm-hmm. And he had already done a segment on Conan. They cut to commercial and Conan said, all right, we're going to come back and you're going to be back on. And he's like, what? I thought we were done. <laughs> he's like, you got to, you got to fill like five minutes. And he's like, what? <laughs> and he basically just decided, I'm just going to do this joke, but I'm going to stretch it out for the entire time. And mm. that was the joke. That's what made it funny. And mm-hmm. that's to me such a perfect example of like what you're talking about of kind of being in the moment, gathering yeah. your thoughts, being deliberate, yes. you know, and also just finding your voice. Like yes. that that now is what we know as Norm Macdonald's voice. That's right, his right. voice is that joke. Right. Little did we know that it was just him trying to fill five minutes and that's how right. he did it. You know, and like you're talking about with the speech you gave. And I think it all ties back to this movie where I find it interesting that the movie does talk a lot about him finding his voice. And that's just a thing we talk about. Like, you know, everybody has a voice. Mm-hmm. Like, and you need to find your own voice. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we talk about it in terms of finding your, your personality or making right. sure you feel valued, making sure that yeah, you right. feel like you have a place in the room, you have a seat at the table, right. you have a voice. Or that your you story know, is told. That your story is told. And I think it's interesting in the movie that they actually just take it literally. Like, yes. you're, this is your voice. Listen yes. to the way you speak. Listen mm-hmm. to how you put together words, mm-hmm. you know? And it's something that actually has been a, uh, a weird byproduct of this podcast because we record it. Mm-hmm. I have to listen to it meticulously as I edit it. I have heard my voice. And everybody, you, you talk to anybody, I hate the sound of my own voice, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's true. I mean, I always hated the sound of my own voice, but I've listened to it so much now. <laughs> I'm sure Ryan can maybe say the same thing. You do a podcast long enough, you hear your own voice. And I'm sure with preaching, you you know, you probably hear your own mm-hmm. voice enough to where it does take time, but it is worth getting comfortable with your voice and not feeling like the way you speak is inadequate or not feeling like the way you put sentences together, the way right. you express your ideas is inadequate. Like it's good enough. You know, yeah. you just have to learn how to craft it and own it. And in homiletics, we use that's the really same just, term. That's the movie. Like that's yeah. really what Lionel Logue does. I mean, he does a few exercises, but ultimately mm-hmm. it's really just about this is how you speak. Let's figure out how to make it yours and make it yeah. your own. You know, in homiletics, we use the same notion of voice, it, just a little more nuance. We'll say, your what is your it is personality in your preaching you know and uh in the african-american preaching tradition for example at the end of sermons not all but some intonate and they do what's called hooping where they're talking and singing in a rhythmic fashion Mm. with a with a musician and it's Mm. really fanciful people have written books on this but Mm. then different preachers do it differently you know aretha franklin's father many people tried to be like him 
mm-hmm. and and some of learning how to find your voice in a way that has its own cadence, its own rhythm, and one that your congregation gets used to and vibes with takes mm-hmm. time. It takes mm-hmm. it takes knowing when your actual literal voice is at the point of being strained or how to actually conserve it. Uh, but then how does your personality in the sermon itself or in the the corpus of your work as a preacher, how does your voice appear then in terms mm-hmm. of what ways, what patterns, speech patterns do you have in your preaching? Do you use humor? Do you use a lot of poetic language? Do you, are you just plain speech? Uh, and And how does your individual personality bleed through? And it takes, for a preacher at least, it takes, you know, a good five to seven years to find that. And it's such a holistic process. Mm -hmm. And that was something that Bertie didn't get. Mm -hmm. He thought, just fix it. (laughs) Fix the problem. Then I can talk. And Lionel knew there's so much more that needs to come into this. Yes, There's so much more that's producing this stammer. There's so much Mm -hmm. more that's keeping you from overcoming it. And there's so much more in there than you think. And that is... I think one of the pretty remarkable things about the movie is that it contains the intrigue of like behind the scenes royalty and the historical context of it is, is vital and the, the inner workings of the family dynamics, but it all centers around one person's finding himself and finding his voice. And this is, you know, this movie comes out before the language is used of um, emotional intelligence or uh, where, you know, everyone has a therapist now. Right. And that, that's not to diminish it. I think everybody needs therapy to a degree, but um, this comes out before then. And you see this man who is really essentially living a traumatized life. Right. And the role of Duke of York, potential heir to the throne and then King those roles, the royal roles, masks his trauma. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people in our world who, who experience deep, deep trauma that don't have anything to mask it. And it plays out in different ways. But this particular person, Colin Firth's character, uh, or Birdie, they run away from going deep. You know, at the beginning, you know, we don't talk about personal matters. Mm-hmm. Don't call me Birdie. Right. Even the distance that he had where, you know, uh, Logue sits back a few feet from him and, you know, does not want to answer personal questions. And he tells them, you know, we can do mechanics and mechanics will only help you a little bit, but unless we get to the deeper core of the issues, you know, it's not going to happen. And it Mm -hmm. takes the death of his father to bring to light the deep and heavy emotions, the traumatic scars that he carried in his soul. And that's generally, you know, as a pastor, you see that a lot. It generally takes life crises Mm -hmm. to show you just how trauma shapes you. Mm -hmm. And, and, and this man, you know, from, from a father who was overbearing, Mm -hmm. trying to keep the monarch alive because it's always in danger Mm -hmm. to a, a nanny who starves him and pinches him when he cries to the loss of his brother, Johnny, mm-hmm. and how, you know, and this is very typical British, how you're not allowed to grieve that. Mm-hmm. That stiff upper lip. That stiff no upper idea. lip. Yeah. And that sort of handicaps him. I think of Jesus's question, do you want to be made well? Mm-hmm. He could not be the leader he needed to be. And granted, 
Yes, the prime ministers do all the work, right. but he could not be the figurehead. The monarch represents consistency. Mm-hmm. It represents persistence that as long as there is a king, long live the king, long live the queen, that we have a nation. But he's not able to do that if he never comes to the place of really finding redemption mm-hmm. and healing through going deep with a friend. And we also see how big a step it is for him just mm-hmm. in the glimpses of his family. Yes. Like the way his brother can't handle any of the pressure and can't mm-hmm. really own his desires, you know? Mm-hmm. And that scene where his brother breaks down and hugs their mom mm-hmm. and she can't even put her hands on him and her face, she just goes like numb. It's almost like she dissociates in that moment. Then that makes his steps towards healing all the more brave. And Logue tells him that while standing on the uh, stone of Schoon, you know, he says, he says, man, you're the bravest person I know. That's right. Mm-hmm. You, know, you see this whole thing in the movie where he volleys back and forth between fear and courage. Fear yeah. is his kryptonite. It's always with him. It never goes away. So in that sense, it's not triumphalistic. It's always there. And he has to battle it. And the pathway to his fear is his pain. And he has to learn how to deal with his pain to be able to cope with his fear. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Logue tells him, you know, you're the most courageous person I know, because that's not something that anyone will is willing to do. It's interesting to me that the thing that ultimately almost fractures the entire relationship is really when he just says you could be king. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a really loaded thing that you could really tear apart because yeah. on a, there's a surface level that's an offensive thing to say because i'm not supposed to be the king and right. you are really it was treasonous you, you, yeah mm-hmm. it's treason there's like that level but then you also wonder is it also just what you're talking about that fear is so great yeah. where he's actually thinking no on a very personal level i cannot be king right you know yes and i often wonder and this kind of gets to a larger question of why do so many people love to watch things and take in stories about royalty about the royal family and I think it kind of hits a little bit on that where there's so much decorum around it. Mm-hmm. There's so much tradition. There's so much pressure from that tradition. In fact, at one point, it seems like they're almost equating being a royal to being indentured servitude. Right. Well, yeah, um, I mean, he, yeah, he kind of he says that it, joke right? early you know, on. Yeah. And I had never thought about it that way, really. Um, maybe when we watched Marie Antoinette with um, yeah. Kristen Dunst, mm-hmm. um, we talked a little bit about that in that episode, about that idea of feeling trapped as right. a royal. Right. Um, this really hits on not only feeling trapped, but feeling isolated, like we already yes. said. What is it about the royal family, whether it's the crown, whether it's the queen, which was another Best Picture winner, That's right. with, you know, yeah. Helen Mirren. And, uh, there's a there's new the, movie about we, Diana yeah, coming and, out. And that's yep. on top of how many documentaries we've seen about this Absolutely. stuff. And, and, and that's not even getting into the news coverage, the tabloids. All, like, we are very much... And Even the, in here in America. The we movie were, Jackie a couple of years ago, true. which isn't, you know, about <laughs> kind of our British royalty. royalty, but American royalty. That's you right. Know? And I think that part of it is that, I mean, these people definitely are in their own way very privileged. Mm-hmm. And we get to see how maybe it's not all that it's cracked up to be. So it, there's a little bit of myth breaking there. But at the same time, it's also allowing us to project, like it's safe. It's safe mm-hmm. for us to project ourselves onto them because we know we'd never be them mm-hmm. in right. a way. Like right. we, we would never be these people. So we can kind of, through storytelling, play around with all of these themes that are really, you know, on a psychological, pathological level, probably going on within all of us, <laughs> inside of us. But we're able to kind of, you know, play with those in our own minds through this family that seems so distant and separate from us. And so there's also sort of this like um, 
interesting universality to it. And it, it kind of goes to what you were saying, Ryan, where it's not always easy to make these sympathetic characters. Because I think when you read history, where they're not getting into the people <laughs> behind these figures, you know, it's they're just figures. heartless people. Yeah, they're, right. they're heartless people. They're goofs. They're clowns. They're buffoons. They're just heartless mm-hmm. people that are all about maintaining touch. power. They're in some ways evil, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, because yes. the movie starts out by saying that the monarch ruled over a quarter of the world's population. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding? Well, what does that yes. mean? That means colonialism. colonialism. That means that, yep. <laughs> you know, yep. one of the things that to me is really fascinating is that we we are somehow able to kind of hold those two together. Like we can mm-hmm. kind of acknowledge that the whole idea of royalty is kind of messed up to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yes. But then we can also watch these stories and be like, but they still are human. That's an know? interesting tension this movie carries. Yeah. yeah. You know, I had a, ser- a similar thought, but I went down a different street with it. I, I think Henry the Sixth, his father might have been the first one to really do that broadcasting stuff. Um, and you mean George the Sixth? George the Sixth. There we go. I keep saying Henry. George the Sixth. His father might have been the first to do the broadcasting. We know that Elizabeth kind of takes the same line where, through because of her husband, opens up the door for them to like be in the house. And so I I couldn't help but ask if these shows that sort of humanize. The, at least the British royals, if it's if it's a way for them to still preserve power, uh, yeah, right. and and, <laughs> right. and and because I mean you know when you, when you go to England, majority of English people are very much for their royals, but you have a growing group mm-hmm. who are like we don't Kick need them, them yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it was a good example. Like you can go there now and visit castles. You could go to Windsor Castle right. and see the whole darn thing, except for the private quarters, because from the king, the queen on down to like dukes and earls and lords were forced into this place of having to say, we got to open up our lives or we won't have a spot anymore. Mm-hmm. I wondered actually, if they're opening up their lives, created this sort of intrigue mm, um, yeah. that said, let's be sympathetic. And then also mm-hmm. helps us wonder, <laughs> is it is it better on the other side? But then if we have shows, which I'm not trying to be conspiracy theorists, I'm not trying to say, you know, <laughs> well, yeah, obviously but... they did not write that show. But, <laughs> you know, where we humanized George the Sixth and we humanized the Queen. Let's show the sympathy. So they could say, okay, man, pity them. They keep their spot. Right, They're slaves yeah. to us anyway. Right, <laughs> <when they're exactly. laughs> yeah. Like, oh, you think we like this? <laughs> right. You think we enjoy having all of us. this yeah. gold and right. never having to pay bills <laughs> and and like having people wait on us? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, that was, no, the, I mean, I, that was the thought. I didn't go far. I think down that's street. valid. I think that's incredibly valid. Like, why now are we getting so much access to their histories and their lives? Like, if they didn't want writers to have access to it, they could, they could stop it. And you know, they're mad at like the BBC for like the Diana thing that came on. Yeah, you know, they yeah. portrayed her in the Queen in the Crown, and uh-huh. they were hot. I, the, it certainly could enter conspiracy theory territory, but of I course. don't think I don't think <laughs> that the way that powerful people have worked in the past would mm-hmm. dispel the notion that you are <laughs> you're exploring. Well, you're really talking about kind of a PR move, yeah, right? I mean, right. establishing it's, it's, narrative. It's, a, yeah. it's not really conspiracy. It's more like times have cha- time, times have changed. Mm-hmm. We've got a PR problem. What can we do about it? We, yes. can, we can we can let people in a little bit more, and we mm-hmm. can show them that we're actual human beings. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, now, are we playing into it by 
you know, watching it, enjoying it, all that stuff. I don't know, you know, but I think that the, the, the royal family does exist. There is drama to it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it is interesting to, you know, take slices of it and just kind of dissect it a little bit and, and, and pull, you know, universal truths about humanity out of it, you know? That's right. And maybe the King's Speech doesn't necessarily hammer on this, but it doesn't shy away from the fact that it's also sort of saying this is a natural outflow of that type of power structure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, sure, it's saying like, yes, life was hard for him, but it's also saying like, he has accepted that because we have accepted that as the byproduct of this type of power to sort of examine like, this is bad for everybody. That's <laughs> <You know>? right. <laughs> yeah. Like, this sort of toxicity is present up there and it's absolutely going to flow down in some way. Mm-hmm. It's a movie that I think is brilliant because I do think at the same time it shows a wonderful picture of friendship mm-hmm. and how sad isolation is. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you cannot live this life without friends. And I think there are mm-hmm. certain elements of the film where friendship is 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 not reciprocated at certain points. Like, right. you know, where Logue is trying to, you know, he's a client, right. he's a professional, but he's trying to be a friend to this man. And and then, you know, finally, I think the one of the most moving parts in the film is when he sits down at that desk and and he says, man, thank you. You know, if, if it weren't for yeah. you, I wouldn't be here. And. He says, thank you, Lionel. Your first wartime speech. Congratulations. Expect I shall have to do a great deal more. Thank you, Logue. Well done. My friend. Thank you. Your Majesty. To see that this man who had no friends didn't know how to relate to people. Right. Just this cold distance. But then he comes close and he shakes his hand mm-hmm. and uh, and says, thank you, friend. So you kind of get to see, you know, I think the beauty of friendship. Is that one of the things that you notice now as you're a little bit older watching this movie that like, because Nate and I, for the last more than 10 years, we've met on like Tuesday nights with a couple of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I was talking with one of those people last night, our friend Ethan, about how rare that seems to be for men, Mm -hmm. especially. And so my friend and I were talking, we don't remember our dads having friends like that. And... um, I don't know if I hadn't established this routine with my friends in my early 20s. Mm -hmm. If this is a routine I could have established now when I'm 36, you know? You know, that stood out even then, thinking about, Mm -hmm. I have a friend who I talk to multiple times a week. 15 years ago, we were prayer partners, so we got on the phone and prayed every day. And then, like, now, you know, we don't pray as much anymore. That's I don't know if that's bad, but, you know, (laughs) we, we talk all the time, and about everything from preaching to, you know, we crack mama jokes from time to time. Um, and, and so I think, I think the beauty of friendship where you're able to be open and vulnerable and not be judged for who you are or your feelings or your mm-hmm. thoughts, your weaknesses, your struggles. 
I don't know how people make that and 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 yeah. in this world without that, without having one or several of people people like that. You know, because life has ebbs and flows. There are times where it's it's up, and then there are times where it's very dark, very sad, heartbreaking, even. And it's been a, my friend who has helped me through pretty much a lot of the flows of life for the last almost twenty years. Mm. And so I think being able to kind of see how that worked for them in a weird way, it just touches my heart yeah. as I think of my friend. Were there other things that ten years older that the movie hits you differently or you notice different things as you've become a father, you've got a career, (laughs) a working professional. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You've got a congregation too. You are a leader, right? Yes. The thing that I came seeing and recognizing more was just the theme of pain and redemption. And as a pastor, we would say the world has fallen in that sense. And that no matter who you are and where you are, life has its way of, tainting you in some way, you know, you will experience some level of pain. So like I felt the emotion of it the first time I saw it, but thinking now as I walk with people through so much pain often and, and see, seeing how that pain oftentimes leads them to self-sabotage, even myself, I think of how like I've had to wrestle with my own insecurities and feeling imposter syndrome in, in almost every stage of life for myself sure. mm-hmm. and how I've had to wrestle with that. Watching the film, I think what jumped out, like even, even how he's in this big cavernous room and they're, they're standing behind this table and even the camera shot, which I never paid attention to, but even the camera shot has like the camera looking up at these men. Mm-hmm. And even as he's talking, and he's stuttering over his words. He looks past them and he sees all of his predecessors or some of his predecessors. And he's looking at them like, I'm not them. Mm -hmm. And it's after that speech that he goes home and lays, sits with his wife in front of the red box. And he says, I'm no king. Where this fear has really taken control of him. So I think I saw that more as an adult, 37 years old, and how I've had to, in my own self, wrestle with mm-hmm. feeling inadequate and like I should not be here. Everyone else is better at this than me. And that fear never leaves. But having to acknowledge it and find ways to cope and come around it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I feel like we'd be um, almost remiss if we didn't mention Helena Bottom Carter at oh, all. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or Timothy Spall as Winston Churchill, I think. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> He played that role very well. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) He got the facial expression. Facial expression, and you know they did throw in there also that he um, he says in there that he also had a uh, a type of speech impediment or something. And I was actually doing some research on some like stuttering association websites, and Mm -hmm. they have pages of like celebrities and famous people who all had stutters. And Winston Churchill is in there, and I thought, man, that's that's interesting. That fascinating that they were kind of in such overlapping circles and had to work Mm -hmm. together. Well, and uh, I mean, this is maybe a little, but. Amanda Gorman, who Amanda. gave that that poem at the inauguration, she mm-hmm. like she developed her voice in her speech therapy in, in wow. school. Mm, that was where it. like spoken word was her way. You know how he, he kind of tells George the Sixth to, to sing, sort of like that was the the cadence and the the performance of spoken word was how she. Uh, you know, the, was therapy for her and her her wow. speech impediments. Yeah. And that's interesting because that's a different voice, right? Like that and and what's I was on this website and they actually said that as a young girl, Marilyn Monroe had a stutter, 
And wow. that breathiness in her voice was something that she learned through mm. speech therapy. It's almost like a good speech therapist just figures out the way you're going to overcome this is to mm. learn your voice, is mm-hmm. to learn your tricks and techniques. Wow. You know? Instead of trying to that. fit into like this mold of proper speaking, you've right. got to figure out how your, pro- your voice properly speaks. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so going back to Helena Bonham Carter's character as you know his spouse, what I find great about that character is... First of all, she loved him and saw the potential all along. Right. It was all always along. there, never, never flinching. Mm-hmm. But she also knew that she couldn't be the answer. She couldn't right. be the one that mm-hmm. would get him to where he needed to be. She had to go find Lionel. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know how true to history that is. I don't know if she was the one that did find him in real life and did all that. Mm-hmm. But for storytelling-wise, I, I think especially in this day and age, because here's going back to our idea of friendship and what it does for you, I think we live in a time where we try to get that all from our spouse or right. significant or, the, or who we love or who we end mm-hmm. up loving or being with. We, we look for that one person who is going to be all of that for us. And I think the movie just kind of shows that, like, of course, she's, she's a great spouse. She's committed. Mm-hmm. She's devoted. She loves him. She loves him for exactly who she is. She has full confidence in him. Mm-hmm. But to understand that she's not enough. She, right. she, she can't make him feel the confidence he needs to feel. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting lesson for today where I feel like a lot of men don't have friendships. And I think that's that very real. they kind of try to find everything they need in mm-hmm. their work yeah. and in their spouse mm-hmm. and in their family life and their kids. Mm-hmm. And if it's not all in there, you know, then they kind of feel like either they're their failure or life sucks and life, there's no way to ever be fulfilled. And they take right. it out. They take right. it out on, on the people yep. around them. And on themselves. Yeah, exactly. Right. And on themselves. Absolutely. And I, I, I mean, I think COVID. Oh, yeah. COVID. Put all was of a, us to yeah. the test where we didn't have anybody else to talk to. You know? <laughs> Our poor wives. Like, <laughs> yeah. And they heard every thought we had, every feeling. And they, they mm-hmm. went, but, and we saw the potential of those relationships to mm-hmm. build us up, but we also saw the limit of that. Yes. And, yeah, yes. this movie touches on that too. Yeah. In this pandemic, I'm thinking about that. Like this summer last year, I mean, I mean, I was I was in the house with Kelly and the kids all day, every day. And they were they were fun. I had a great time with them. But I think I have a group of friends, unlikely group of friends, by the way, who prior to this, we were associates, mm. but we like committed to get together every Thursday night in one of our backyards and we smoked cigars until (laughs) our hearts were merry and (laughs) you know and we just sat there and but we brainstormed ideas yeah we kind of helped each other think through what are some next steps we need to take but i look back on that year like look back on that summer and i'm like man that it was a very stressful period i don't think i realized how stressed i was Mm. but those moments of fellowship were really helpful for us. And we guarded it. Listen to that. We guarded it. Un- yeah. Unconsciously, we were like, okay, Thursday's coming. Yeah. Nothing That's Tuesdays. That's Thursday. Tuesdays for us. Yeah. 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 We guarded that thing. And it, yeah. it really helped us in tremendous ways. I'm really glad you had that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, you know, Watson, this is a movie that I don't think myself or Ryan were ever thinking of revisiting, to be honest. Yeah. And so in a way, it's You're just welcome. like a huge yeah, thank, well, you. thank you. A huge Absolutely thank you for that. Thank you know? you. It's a great movie. And mm-hmm. they, listen, I know it didn't, it wasn't up to snuff for you in 2010, <laughs> but now you've, you're able to see it out I've of the seen context the light. Yes, and noise of all yeah. of that. And now you can admit it's one of the greatest movies. 
last 20 years. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and I'm talking about better than Matrix, better than all of them. Okay. Uh, well, well, maybe we'll have to maybe we'll have to watch it a couple times a week <laughs> yeah. for a few yeah, years. Yeah, we got to get the Watson experience on this to, to really have it soak in that much. But yeah. I like this idea of watching Best Picture winners ten years after they won. Yeah. and see. I think how noise. It holds up. You you called it noise, and I think that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's actually quite a few movies that I've been like you, Watson. I've been in that seat where I'm trying to tell somebody. Mm-hmm. I know there was a lot of backlash around that movie, around the Oscars. You got to watch it apart from that because it, yes. on its own, as a standalone movie, it's solid. It's a solid yes. movie. You know? Yes, it is. Very um, solid. You're welcome. Yeah. No, <laughs> thank you. Honestly, thank you. It's been great talking to yeah. you. So, hey, uh, you know, before we go, Watson, um, for any of our listeners out there that would maybe want to, like, you know, uh, seek you out a little bit, like, see what you're talking about, do you want to share it all with our listeners, Twitter, or Instagram, or anywhere people can find you? Yes, Facebook is Watson Jones III, even though no one of our generation is on there like that anymore. Or uh, Instagram and Twitter, both handles are Watson Jones III. Is that the number three or like three eyes for the Roman? Good world? question, Nate. Yeah. Number three. Just, you know, okay. we're, we're an audio format here, so we got to kind of really Watson spell it out. Watson Jones so. and the number three. Number yes. three. Okay. Yes, Watson Jones, the number three. Definitely go seek that out if you're listening. And I know okay. you've had some cool stuff, like you were in D.C., right, recently mm-hmm. on a panel with uh, mm-hmm. Jamar Tisby and Kemeni uh, Uon and... Uh, do you have anything like that coming up? Any any other sort of like speaking engagements or any special yes. projects coming up? I do have some preaching engagements coming up. I'm doing a regional for Exponential in October and then uh, Jen's regular preaching engagement stuff that's happening. But other than that, I think that's the last conference thing I'm doing. That's then it just cool. drops in terms of <laughs> less busy towards December. <laughs> that's good. Not a bad that's thing good. sometimes. Yeah. Because December's busy enough on its own. Busy enough on its own. Yes. <clears throat> Well, it's been so cool watching your career, watching you flourish as a pastor mm-hmm. and as a speaker um, and as an academic and as a Genesis fan. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's and right. I'm really glad that we got the chance to talk to you tonight. So thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much, Watson. Thank you. It's good seeing you guys again. You too. All right. So, uh, Ryan, what are we going to be doing for our next episode of Can We Still Be Friends? Well, we all know what this is. Tis the season. Tis the season. It's the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> yes. We're entering our three-month season, kicked off with our holiday, holiday spooktacular. spooktacular. Oh, our man. And, eighth, and eighth. Our eighth annual holiday spooktacular. And it is going to be a spectacle of a spooktacular. Oh, it's going to be the spookiest the, of spooktaculars. Yes, the spookiest, the most festive. The tuxedos will be worn. Mm-hmm. The the disco ball will be will be flashing light all over the place mm-hmm. in a spooky way. The spook- but also very like cool. Yeah, of course. It's gotta be cool spook. Yeah. Um the, the spooky tinsel uh-huh. will, be, will be hung. Hung on um, the, 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 the dead tree. In, in the dead trees, yeah. Yeah. With care. You don't do that carelessly. No, no. <laughs> you do it with care. If you want it to be spooky, you, you do it carefully. Right, yeah. Right. So, I mean, obviously, we're bubbling over with the the, the season. We know you're you've got you're probably already making travel plans as safely as possible to get together with family uh, around the the pumpkin. Head into the patch. Yeah, go into the, the patch to, to 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 chop down your own pumpkin, <laughs> and of, of course, watching a scary movie with us. Yes. I mean, tis the season. Tis the season. What else are you going to do? I, if you're going to celebrate the spectacular, this is just part of it. It's, yeah. it's kind of like, you know, that other holiday 
that we, you know, do get to in December. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, the December holiday that everybody celebrates. Yes, yes, I do. The name escapes me, but yeah, I do I, remember. What I you're don't know about. either. I just know that like Charlie Brown Christmas, Christmas, Chris, that's, that's it. That Chris, it. Charlie Brown Christmas is part of that. Can we still be friends? Holiday spectacular is part of the spectacular. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it exactly. might as well be airing on ABC. That's, that's true. how I feel. Yeah. Um, this year we've got a movie that's celebrating an anniversary in that uh, thirty years ago. Thirty. Thirty years. Wow. We'll just tell you, we are doing 1991's smash hit, Oscar-winning, The Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Sodal, for sure. Does, does, they, does anybody they? say that? I have not heard that. I haven't either. I just made it up. But I, I don't thought. know if that... I mean, we don't misstep very often. <laughs> if we commit to that, I might call that a misstep. That would be maybe where the holiday spectacular jumps the shark. A little bit. Was the moment when yeah, Nate and Ryan started calling Silence of the, the need Lambs. Felt the to abbreviate, yeah, abbreviate Silence of the Lambs. That's not a spectacular thing to do. No. That move is tantamount to hanging tinsel carelessly. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just... I love my acronyms. You do. All right? And, sometimes and they I have their the, time. They do. This was but not tis not the season. Tis not the season for this. That's correct. Yeah. So we've got, uh, yeah. But Silence of the Lambs. Iconic performances. All around. Everywhere. Yeah. You, you can't You can't watch blink. a second of that movie without catching right. an iconic performance. Yes. You, if you uh, blink, you'll miss an icon. Yeah. That's what I always say That's about right. Sotal. That's right. That, and not, you need to stop saying it. I'm, of course, Anthony Hopkins in one of the shortest Best Actor winning yeah. roles Ever, Jodie Foster, and of course Ted Levine as Buffalo Bill. Uh, but some people might be wondering, hey, hey, I thought you guys were kind of like doing this new thing, right? You know, like you're having guests come on and all that kind of stuff. And we are. We're, I don't think we're going to totally jettison that, but we're, nope. we're entering into holiday season. That's yeah, kind of the way we look at it. Yeah, and holiday holiday times, family time. Right, right. So um, we're going to kind of you know kind of get back to traditions a little bit. Mm-hmm. Traditional, can we still be friends? Mm-hmm. We got the spectacular in October. If you don't know, or I don't know how you don't know this, but by the time you Everybody get to November, knows, you got T. Hanksgiving. You got T. Hanksgiving, and we're you know we're already preparing for that as well. Right. It's a busy time for us. You know that's kind of where we don't right. really think we could bring a guest into this. Right. It is a whirlwind here. Right. And we're to bring someone in would be a little unfair to them. Right. So so yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna for now we're gonna kind of uh, take a little breather from the guest thing. I think the guest thing, as, as far as the way I kind of see it, is it's it was a it was a great thing to do kind of through the summer. Yeah. It was a good summer thing to do. Once I went back to work and my <laughs> right. my schedule became a lot less flexible, it became a lot harder for us to to do that. Yeah. Worth it. Totally. But also very difficult. Yeah. And so I think we'll come back to it. Yes. But I think for right now, we're going to go back to just, hey, me and Ryan. Yeah. It's family. Nate, time. if you didn't know who the me was. Yeah. That. Nate and Ryan. Holiday Spectacular. Tea Thanksgiving. And we'll definitely do that. The holiday, holiday movie, movie for whatever that thing. I, I don't. We just said it, but we I can't remember it. what Charlie Brown. Christmas. That's Christmas. It. Yes. We'll do. And just know. need to. I need to. They need that running start. Yeah. But we'll do something, you know, festive for that month as well. Yeah. So got a lot coming up. Yeah. We hope you guys join us. Uh, you know, the next one, like we said, is going to be Silence of the Lambs. So please, you can, if you can take it. Yeah. Not everyone can. Oof. But if you can take it. And if you can't, no judgment. No judgment. Yeah. And I'm, I'm worried about myself here yeah we'll we'll get through it so yeah uh let us know your thoughts on silence of the lambs uh definitely on the King's on speech the King's speech mm-hmm. um any of our other past episodes uh we got a lot of ways you can connect with us uh so we hope you do uh let's just run through some of those ways shall we yeah well i, I always like to start it off with good old facebook.com can we still good be place friends to start. podcast mm-hmm. 
We've got Instagram, which is another Facebook company. Yeah. Um, and there we shorten it to Can We Still Be Friends Pod. Mm-hmm. We've got our website, always, always available. Uh, can We Still Be Friends dot net. And yeah, then, it is available around the clock. Available. Yeah. Oh yeah. Can We Still Be Friends. Yeah, we got that. We've got that going. Got 20, that out. Twenty four seven. Twenty four seven. And um, our email is closely related. It's feedback at Can We Still Be Friends dot net. Mm-hmm. That one's around the clock, too. You can send anytime. Anytime. Don't worry about it bouncing back. I mean, right. I know, you know, I worry about that all the time when I send emails. It's going to bounce back. But yeah. I can tell you with confidence, if yeah. you send us an email, it will get to us. Right. Um, and, and also, not just email. You can also send a voice message as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> How, did that come? How did that come out that way? <laughs> I have no idea how that came out that way. Was there something deep down that just came down, came out? I don't know. As whale. Anyways, uh, yeah, send us a send a send us a voice message. Eight four seven three zero six nine five three two is uh, the number to call. You can also record it in the voice recorder app of your phone and send that in an Package email. Package that up, send it in an email, and if you send us a voice message, we'll make sure we try to work that into uh, the episode somehow. So, yeah. boy, it's getting late. Yep. And uh, I think we're getting ready to wrap this up. But uh, thank you so much for listening, as always. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you do want any sort of way to give back at all for the spooktacular, yeah. it's the holidays, yeah. it's the season, if you want to give. Season of giving. Um, you know, we don't ask for money. Nope. We don't have any sort of paywall subscription plan. We just ask, hey, maybe just uh, tell your friends, tell your family, and think about leaving us a nice little rating on uh, Apple Podcasts. That'll yeah. go a long way. So. You got anything else to say, Ryan? No, just another thank you to Watson for Definitely. for joining us. Yeah. And yeah. thank you to everybody who listened. Thanks a lot. We'll catch you next time.